You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast with service members from across the military sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week. Before we get started with this week's episode, which is one that does not feature a military member, but one that deals with issues that military members and veterans are fighting and dealing with every single day. More on that in a moment. But a reminder to continue to hit Apple Podcasts. Please get on Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. We want to get to at least 1,000. We're about halfway there right now. We continue to get better in this department. And it's really easy for you guys to do. It doesn't have to be a very lengthy review. In fact, you can do it from your smartphone if you're listening to this via Apple Podcasts. If you click on the hazard ground and scroll down to the bottom, you'll see a rating and a review. Just leave a quick review. Tell us what you like. Give us five stars. And that is it. It is very simple, very fast, and very easy. Speaking of very easy, go to our website, hazardground.com, and click on the Sponsors tab on the top of the homepage or the Amazon button at the bottom of the homepage, and it will direct you right to Amazon, and you can do all your normal Amazon shopping. We'll get a percentage of what you guys spend, and then we'll donate a percentage of that back to the charities and organizations you've heard featured here on the Hazard Ground. It's a very easy way to help out veterans' organizations really from your own house, from your living room, and even on your smartphone. When you go to hazardground.com or your smartphone and you click on the Amazon button, it'll direct you to the Amazon app so all of your information is still loaded. You don't have to put in your credit card or anything like that. It's very simple and very, very easy. Don't forget to follow us on all the social media sites, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at hazardground at hazardgroundpodcast. Subscribe to the YouTube channel. And as always, if you have a guest suggestion, please email us, producer at hazardground.com. And if you have been following us on social media, you'll see us reposting some of the reviews and some of the emails and messages that we're getting from you guys. We love to share those, so continue to give us the feedback about what you love about this show and continue to be part of the Hazard Ground community. Now that that's out of the way, let's get on to this week's episode. Joining us this week on the Hazard Ground is a special guest who is not a member of the military, but works very closely with members of the military and veterans. She is the author of the book, Warrior, How to Support Those Who Protect Us. She also co-authored a book called Beyond the Military, A Leader's Handbook for Warrior Reintegration. She is a Harvard graduate and has become one of the nation's most trusted sources for military warfighters and dealing with post-traumatic stress, veteran suicide, and all mental health issues that veterans and service members deal with. You may have seen her work on CNN, NPR, NBC, CBS Radio, and Military Times. She is Dr. Shauna Springer joining us on the Hazard Ground Podcast. Dr. Springer, welcome and thank you so much for being here. Thank you. It's really good to be here with you. All right. We talk a ton on the podcast about uh, PTSD, uh, mental trauma, mm-hmm. the, the things that soldiers have to recover from uh, all the time. It, it, it's a consistent theme. So as one of the foremost experts in this area, uh, I, I know our audience is excited to hear your thoughts. Uh, what is interesting as I was reading your story before we start is even though you're not in the military, you sort of grew up in a military household. Uh, as I understand it, your father was like a Marine Corps drill instructor to you as a kid. Yeah, very much so. Um, You know, he literally read the great Santini and thought that would make a great parenting manual. So many of the things that I experienced growing up were from that mold, um, including, you know, running it, it, you know, early in the morning with my siblings, miles in the dark and competing in local track meets, wearing uh, T-shirts that said property of team, you know, our, our name. 
um, and sending us abroad from a young age to do ministry and service-oriented trips by ourselves um, in different countries for different reasons. So there were all of these, I guess, campaigns against fear and helping us overcome um, our natural boundaries around fear and things that we would otherwise be uncomfortable doing. And it's, it's really what made me feel at home with those who have served um, the commitment to service and the, the deeper values that I was raised with and the discipline um, and the teamwork. So yes, I'm, I'm not a military service member, but uh, military folks feel like home to me in many cases. All right. Well, let me dive into this here just for the audience sake and give some more clarity. Uh, you talked about your father getting you up three times a week at 5 a.m. as young yep. as five years old to run laps in the dark around a local track. You got yep. sent to foreign countries alone not with your parents there, alone, to right. go learn about other cultures. Uh, you told one story how your father offered you $10 to jump off an Olympic-sized dive platform. Yeah. Uh, uh, I mean, okay, <laughs> it, it's 2021, and, and by no means am I like, you know, a, a softie or a sense, but, you know, in today's times, this is like almost abuse-like. <laughs> you know, as a mom of kids around that age or a little bit older, I, I can't imagine doing some of the things to my kids yeah, that I, I grew have up twin with. five year old boys. I am. I, listen, I don't want to get up and run laps at 5am like seven thirty. Okay. I'm all right. But you know, dragging my kids out of bed in the morning just to get them ready for kindergarten is a challenge to, to get them yeah. up and moving and running is, is maniacal. It seems like, you know, I had nightmares sometimes about being awakened by a sweaty tooth madman into college um, and probably exercise some of that by writing, you know, sort of, in these fiction writing pieces that I wrote about some of my early childhood. Now, having said that, my dad is someone that is really an amazing person that I have deep respect for, who's one of the smartest people I've ever met, who fights for people in his way, um, in his life as a lit litigator and a, an attorney. So, you know, he is somebody that is fear inducing for most adults. I'm wired a little differently. My kids know they're safe from me getting up at like four in the morning, five in the morning. <laughs> usually, choice, kids, right? usually kids love going to grandma and grandpa's, not in your case. <laughs> oh, oh, they love him, but he, he's different with them, you know, than he was with us. Like that, that story of the, the Olympic diving platform, it was one of those, you know, the Olympics came to LA in 1984. Carl Lewis and Greg Luganis and many of the Olympians. And so they had, you know, the Olympic stadiums and we went out to some of the pools around that time um, and before and kind of checked it out. There was a platform dive. It was a big concrete. It's a 10 block. meter platform, right? That's the standard yeah, yeah, Olympic size. Yeah. Okay. So 10 yeah. meters for the non-math that. majors, that's like 30 feet. <laughs> it was, it seemed like I was going to just die. Like that's daunting um, for adults. Yeah, it was, it was terrifying and I couldn't swim. So there was an element of oh. trust, you know, he was <laughs> in the pool and said, jump and I'll, I'll, you know, scoop you up. Now, what people need to understand is this is coming on the heels of a lot of other challenges. Like I remember he told my, my brother that he would um, give him $10 if he would run out into the middle of like a parade and give a girl that he'd never met a kiss on the hand. Um, so no, he see, did that, that I would do as a dad. That's me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so if you get enough of that and it becomes kind of the, the literally the stream you swim in, right? So when he challenged me and said, I'll give you $10 and I'm going to pick you up out of the pool. And, you know, I believed him and I jumped and I was terrified and, and I got $10, which felt like, you know, a lot of money to me at the time. So, um, 
looking back, you know, I can see how extreme some of it was, but it's made me a lot less afraid. So I'm ambivalent about some of it. I got to tell you, I'm, you know, well, let me ask you clinically as a, as a psychologist here, when, when you think back on that and you study, is yeah. there anything you look at your dad and say, like, there was, I don't want to say misfiring synapses per se, but like psychologically, do you feel like that could have done more harm than good? You know, this is where the ambivalence comes in because I wouldn't say that I had an easy childhood, but um, he is a tremendous asset to a lot of people. And I don't know if I could do the work that I do without having had that childhood. Um, I continually hear from warfighters that, they are um, amazed that I'm not shocked by anything, that I, I don't have any fear of them, that I don't, you know, emit an anxious energy. They can tell me anything they want to. And it's because I had a lifetime of uh, pushing myself through challenges, not of my own will in the early years, but then later it became something I adopted. So even when I wasn't required to go on these trips uh, in college, I went down to Peru and I, I lived, you know, on the Amazon River with a, a group of Shipibo Indians and we hunted alligators at night. Um, and, you know, that was an adventure. I had other, you know, adventures during the summers. And so when my husband and I met back at Harvard, one of our first summers together was we went down to Chile and we did a lot of adventurous things down there when we were dating. So it became a part of my values. And, and so I, I don't know. I mean, I feel ambivalent about it. I have to ask, what was mom's opinion on all this? I mean, I like swing the kids around and, and roughhouse with them. And my old lady loses <laughs> her mind when I do that to the children. Uh, your mom was okay with, you know, you launching from a 10 meter platform into the pool. My mom is German and Norwegian. And um, her father was quite a person uh, in his time and her mom as well. They were both, um, her grandma was a cut the crap kind of person. I would say when she was alive, uh, just cut cut your guff and, and get to work. And her dad was an engineer who uh, worked on some kind of high profile war related projects. And so they were extreme people. Um, and I think that, you know, she was right there on all the runs with us. So even if she wasn't pushing for this, you know, way of raising us, she was certainly right along with us wow. um, on all those runs. Now, uh, hypothetically speaking, if I came into your office and told you a story that I did this with my children, clinically, what would you say to a parent? <laughs> you got me there. I don't know. I, I'd be asking a lot of questions. You know, uh, <laughs> it's different when you put it that way. Yeah, um, I mean, again, I, and, and no judgment, honestly. I mean, I, I everybody grows up differently. Um, and I, one thing I've learned in the in the short time that I've been a parent is you don't critique other people's parenting uh, and you certainly don't do it to their face, but uh, because everybody's a product of their experiences. And so from that standpoint, um, that doesn't make you a good or bad parent. I mean, I think there are some things we all genuinely feel are, are crossing the line, but uh, while this may be out there, I don't know if it crosses the line, especially no. when yeah. you know your children and what they can handle. Um, so I, I, I yeah. guess I just am expressing, you know, some parental, anxiety and, and, and trying to understand. And I'm thinking what I, if I was to put my kids through this, what their reaction would be. And I don't really know. Well, I have, you know, my own, you know, anxiety as a parent now, you know, with little ones. And so I feel you on that, but at the same time, you know, in retrospect to give him credit, 
I hear all the time from people, oh, it's you're so different. You're not like other people that are not military service members. You really understand and you're not afraid of us. And I hear that so often. And I just, I think it's a lot to do validation? with. I mean, it makes some of that pain worth it. And it, it's, you know, what I've learned about trauma, right, is whether this was a trauma or not, it was painful and it shaped me. And when you take things that are painful and you make meaning out of them, it's an incredible fuel for what you want to do with your life. And so I think it's operated that way in my life. I mean, I'm not raising my kids on the same, you know, kind of model, mm -hmm. but, uh, you know, I, I, I have ambivalence about it. I see the positive sides of this in, in retrospect. Yeah, uh, I'll, I'll quote my uh, Catholic school upbringing, St. Thomas Aquinas, to live is to suffer, to survive is to find meaning in the suffering. Uh, yeah. And, and there, there, is, there is some of that, right? And I, I think yeah. that's what we grow from and that's what we learn from. So uh, I, I get that much. Uh, was there anything that you did not do that your dad had thrown your way as a kid? I tried one time. That didn't go so well for me. Um, you know, I tried to be, I was probably the most rebellious, actually, of, of my siblings. And uh, maybe they found like more, you know, sneaky ways at times. I don't want to give away their stuff, but... Um, I was outright rebellious and got, you know, uh, you know, old school punished for that mm -hmm. at times. Um, so, you know, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a different model. And, uh, at the same time, like, I, I wonder when people in the warfighter community say to me things like, you've been initiated into suffering. I think that's what they mean is that there's a recognition that we share that has helped me connect with people that I serve even though I haven't served in the military, I haven't deployed to a war zone. You know, I haven't had a lot of the experiences that people share with me, but my capacity to listen and understand some of those things um, has been heightened by my own experience growing up and some of the life experiences I've had before I went into being a psychologist. All right. So I, I want to ask you about the foreign service trips alone as a child, because I, I think there's multiple things here. And it sort of leads to what you were just talking about and understanding, even though you've never been deployed. If you've been mm -hmm. to some of these countries, you understand depravity. And unfortunately, yeah. and I say this repeatedly, you know, I shake my head sometimes at the, the, the literal first world problems we, we complain about on social media um, these days because people just generally don't understand. And I don't look down on them for it because I, I don't expect to understand. Um, and I'm not going to you know, go into the old cliche of how fortunate we are in America and how we, we listen, not, not everybody in America is leading the, the, a charmed life. I, I get that. And there is depravity in America, but it's a different kind of depravity yeah. when you are in Chile or Peru or, or some of these other countries right. that don't have, you know, the structure of government that we have. But I, I wonder as a kid, that separation anxiety from parents at a young age, that seems more of the fear than actual survival in a foreign country. I don't know that I had a lot of that. Maybe it's just my disposition, but um, I don't remember feeling anxious about being separated from my parents. I remember feeling like I can do this because of what was invested in me before that and all the challenges that had come before. So to me at the time, you know, it was a little bit weird, but I didn't have any comparison. And so like, I remember the first trip that I took, they gave me a photo of the family. It was Mexico City was my first trip. And I had my bag and my picture and I flew in. This was the days before cell phones and all that. Right. And I was to use the picture to find the family and live with them and help them in any way that they needed help. Well, it turns out their area of service was in what was at the time the second biggest garbage dump 
in the world, in Mexico City, or so they told me. So we would go out there and, um, you know, deliver supplies and medicine and things to people that were living in the dump. And that was a really interesting, informative experience that, yes, seared itself into my memory. And you might consider a trauma. I remember, you know, as a little kid, I think I was about 10 years old for that trip. There were these men that had cuts on their bodies and they were wearing rags and they were, you know, soiled, you know, in the back and they just didn't care about anything. They were scrabbling for um, glue bottles so they could huff glue and, and get away from the pain of their physical and mental, you know, sort of experience of life, right? Living in the garbage dump, not just scavenging it, but actually living there. But then there were also, you know, these kids, like another memory that's totally locked in for me with crystal clarity. I can see it right now are these kids that were running around playing soccer with a little wad of rags that they had fashioned into a ball. And there was broken shards of glass all over this like hard mud packed earth. It's outside. And um, a row of like cardboard shanty houses all the way down as far as you can see. And they are running around with bare feet, calloused feet, playing soccer and laughing and smiling in the midst of this like human carnage and these people that are trying to find glue so they can huff it. So like those experiences and seeing that, I think at a young age, really expanded my sense, like you said, to your point, of the range of how people in the world live and how they can live and find joy and find connection, even in those situations. And then coming back and having the like cultural whiplash of going back into a very, you know, relatively privileged um, junior high and high school was just a really interesting experience that, again, helps me identify with perhaps what it feels like to go to a war zone and then come back and try and come into a society that has very different values um, than you've come to hold. I want to ask you uh, sort of a loaded two-part question. Um, All right. And that is also part of, you know, your role now as a psychologist. Um, Sure. Do you feel like your dad was sort of living out some deficiencies in his life through his kids? Because we see that often, I think, with parents sometimes uh, when they force kids to do things that they uh, themselves didn't do. And do you feel like maybe your dad was sort of creating his kids or programming his kids on purpose? Like, it seems very intentional what he did. It was intentional, but I don't think it was to cover up or live out some deficiency. He's a highly successful person. Um, who has, you know, three degrees from Harvard and who worked very hard to get to where he is. And I think that he consciously did not want to grow up uh, a bunch of kids that were had a privileged mindset and didn't understand uh, what it was like to actually have to come from behind. And so I think, you know, if there's any design in that, it was to make sure we weren't limited by anxiety or privilege. And so my sense is that my parents agreed that that was an important value set for both of them and that they pushed us because of their values that some of which became our values. And, you know, sometimes like other, any kid, you know, we'd go our own way and and define our own values for our future. All right. Well, I mean, it's just, it's a lot to process from the outside. I can only imagine what it was from the inside. Uh, So your dad went to Harvard as well. Is that why you had sort of geared up to go there? I went back to um, check out the campus 
And I had the kind of feeling that I had when I met my husband and when I found a a house that I knew I was going to buy. It was just, I just felt like it was home for me. And so, yes, the reason why it was on the college tour was because, you know, that was a college I wanted to check out, I'm sure, in relation to my dad's uh, good experience there. But it was some of the best four years of my life. And that was just a time when I really blossomed and became, you know, confident in in arguing with my classmates in, in, in classrooms, you know, like the way that we would at Harvard is we'd have sections and we would take on a topic and then we would say what we think. And after a high school experience where I was always kind of suppressing really what I thought because I wanted to, you know, not look too smart, um, I really came into myself and was able to kind of really say what I thought about things and develop my thinking and friendships. And it was, it was a glorious four years, honestly. Did you know you wanted to be a psychologist when you went there? Nope. I was going to be a lawyer. I was going to take over my dad's law firm. And then I ended up, interestingly, a couple of years ago for my uh, 20th reunion, I ended up being invited to do a panel of people that chose unconventional careers. So most of my classmates, I would say a big majority went into investment banking, consulting, law or medicine. And I did a panel with a bunch of people that did some really fascinating things. And then I was asked to also kind of be part of the panel and talk about my work in support of our nation's warfighters and how that's, you know, central to my purpose and will always be central to my purpose, no matter what else I do as a psychologist. All right. So when did you get involved in sort of the warfighter community in that tribe, like as far as treating them? I mean, obviously that wasn't your focus going in, right? It wasn't about Mm -hmm. military. It was just about helping people or uh, I I know you do a lot of stuff with relationships and marriage as well. Yeah. What was your initial focus when you started? Yeah. So thanks. Great questions. Um, A lot of stuff coming up. So I did 10 years really focused on close relationships before I ever started working with the military population. Um, And someday I'll I'll get back to kind of bringing those two things together more intentionally. But that involved a study of 200 newlywed couples that we followed over four years that was part of my PhD program. Um, And then I did a lot of study and and work with with couples. Um, And during my internship year, excuse me, during my internship year, I did a rotation at the Gainesville VA. And that's where I first felt like, oh, there's something different about this population and I really enjoy working with this population. Um, there's something about a shared value set. And it was almost like a, a kind of a recognition, even though, again, I don't want to say that I'm like exactly, if anything, it's an honor that I've been adopted into the tribe by the warfighter community as much as I have. I'm not a military veteran. But there was a, a feeling of, of just mutual respect and recognition that I started to see during that internship. And then I took a full-time position in a VA and was in the VA for eight years. Um, and that's when I really blossomed in my professional like line of work and, and in terms of a population that was really important to me. So, I mean, there's a lot of this center around 9-11 and, you know, obviously post that is when all of this really, you know, became a real thing. But even that, it didn't happen until, you know, 10 years after 9-11 when we started actually using the word PTSD uh, you know, in common usage, but, um, when do you actually start in your career with veterans? Yeah. So I was, uh, 2009 was when I started in the VA and, um, 
So I don't really think it was related to 9-11 or, to be honest, very intentional on my part. It kind of took me by surprise. It wasn't something I had planned out and, you know, orchestrated long ago. I just recognized that I really liked working with this population. And so I came to work at the VA. I was a general mental health psychologist. And it was before we had PTSD specialty teams. So what that meant was that I was one of two psychologists when I came into that VA. And I saw everyone who came in along with, you know, the rest of the team, of course, but all kinds of issues, not just post-traumatic stress, but everything. So in order to make that work, I had to think in terms of groups of people and issues that were coming up for patients. And so I started like really getting a head start on thinking about issues like moral injury, like how do I build trust with veterans as a civilian, like um, survivor guilt, these themes among this huge group of patients I was serving because I kind of had to, to, to survive is to sort of bunch people together in groups or, or think about how I can get better at treating them because there was just such a volume of need when I came into that job. All right. So there's a, there's a lot to dissect when it comes to, you know, veterans and and the issues that they deal with prior to this work, how much of an understanding and I hate and this is an insulting question. How much of an understanding okay. did you have of PTSD <laughs> uh, and what soldiers deal with transition survivors? Get, like, I mean, it's not something that I'm sure it comes up in the normal course of, of you know, when people lose family members and everything. But there's a little nuance to it when it comes to veterans. Yeah, yeah there's a lot. I had no understanding. <laughs> None. So when, you know, my first week on the job, I got a list of 100 patients <laughs> and they said, these people have been waiting a long time to, you know, have us bring you on board. Some of them are really angry. Call them and find out what they need. Um, I thought I was, you know, there. Fresh troops had arrived, and uh, I got totally cut down by one of them who said, basically, like, "Who do you think you are? Who do you think, you know, do you, why do you think you can understand me when you haven't had any of my experiences?" Now, it wasn't personal, but he was right that that really sent me down a path of, do I have what it takes to really support those I'm here to walk with? And that question changed everything for me because out of that sense of, I don't know if I do understand, I started to think differently about some of the things that we take for granted. For example, um, I think one of the huge misconceptions is that what veterans see and do in war is the source of their trauma. Sometimes. But a lot of times they're just too scared to say, you know, it didn't bother me that I had to kill that person. That's what a soldier does. It wasn't that that really bothered me. But this thing over here, um, you know, just surviving when one of my brothers was killed, that was the trauma. That's the thing I've locked 10, 10 levels in the vault and have never talked to anyone about. So the things that we think are the trauma are often projections of our own experience based on who we are and what we've experienced and what we would find traumatizing. And so the reason I wrote my book warrior is to shed light on all of these areas that I really think that I 10 years ago and many people uh, need to understand much differently than we do now. You know, one of the things uh, I talk about a lot uh, with guests on the show um, is the concept that, the person you were before you went to combat, that person dies when you go to combat. Whether something bad happened to you or not, 
that experience alters you forever and, and you're never the same again. Um, I was fortunate enough to, you know, leave combat with, you know, m- not many physical wounds, but I know damn well that mm-hmm. the world I saw before I went to combat, I'll never see it again because I just yeah. don't look at things the same way because it is such an altering experience. And and the yeah. only people who tend to understand it, um, and part of this is part of the isolation issue that we deal with, are other people who went through it with us. And, yeah. and you know, I, I think bridging that gap and finding people who you can relate to um, is yeah. is incredibly difficult. But you know, let's stay with the idea that the the, the person dies. Um, what have you learned about combat that you know is a theme that changes people the most beyond the, the simple stuff of bombs and bullets and blood and all the other stuff? Yeah, well, it certainly is an initiation. And one of the um, things that will never be the same again, to your point, is that you'll never just inhabit one world. That one of the underappreciated sacrifices is that you're always going to hold these two worlds and these two selves in tension. And that can create a lot of problems for people if they don't have someone to really walk with them through the reintegration process. So there's the, you know, person you are as a warfighter, warrior, the qualities you need to have to do that job well are various, you know, qualities. And, you know, like one of the examples, and really it came from conversation and writing that uh, Carl Marlantis has done. So I need to give credit for this, but really working through this concept that you can, as a warfighter, be okay with or even feel happy about taking someone out if they're a threat to you and your brothers and sisters in arms and not be a sociopath. But, yeah. I mean, you I, know, I, there is so much context lost. I, I, I mean, uh, I have always boiled it down to one simple thing, him or me. Mm. The choice mm. is easy from that standpoint. I, I can right? cognitively, you know, there's cognitive dissonance there that I can clear. N- not a problem. I mean, it doesn't, yeah. doesn't keep me up at night. Never has, never will, <laughs> you know, right. uh, it, because it was more important for me to bring home everybody that was with me. Um, yeah. than anything else. And, and, you know, the whole right. need to make an omelet break a few eggs. It's, it's the normal course of business, right? <laughs> right. As callous as that is. Um, it, it isn't though, in it, that context, right. what mother wouldn't take out somebody that threatens her kid? You know, in that context, it isn't. And, and context is, is so important. And, and, you know, in the political sense, you know, it's, it's awful yeah. hard when we have to deal with People who uh, wear a suit and they're, you know, 50,000 miles away (laughs) making decisions on how and when I can fire my weapon at the enemy. Um, You're not standing where I am. Your life is not in danger. It's easy for you to put these these constraints on me. But at the end of the day, um, you know, uh, the the, the mental process that we have to go through to survive uh, one way or another sometimes isn't 100% in our hands. And that also is a source of frustration. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, just... For my, you know, the link to me when you say that is to be effective, it really wasn't about what I came to learn in any academic sense or even in the clinical space where I worked for so many years. I really started to understand what it takes to support warriors when I got outside of the clinical space and started going into these private reunions and groups and got embedded in the veteran community in a different way as a doc and not just sort of like a doctor who comes into the rule of like, here I have these, you know, diagnoses and I'm going to figure out what's wrong with you and then develop this, you know, treatment plan that's going to get you better. 
it was a whole different shift in how I approached practice and getting in there with them in the trenches of mental warfare for so many years was such a part of that shift for me. All right. Uh, there's, there's so much here. I'm not, I don't even know where I want to go next. Um, let's, let's <laughs> stay with PTSD for a minute. Uh, sure. What, what do we know now about PTSD that we didn't know 10, 15 years ago? I am so glad you asked that question. So uh, I just gave a talk this morning about this for an addiction summit about how um, post-traumatic stress has traditionally been seen as a disorder, as an invisible injury, if it is considered an injury, and as something that frankly is a life sentence. Like once you have it, you'll always have it. So um, it's going to change the rest of your life and there's no true healing. What we know now, based on the work of Ella as their chief psychologist, is that when you fuse biological, psychological, and mind-body practices in a strategic way, people really can achieve incredible healing from their worst symptoms, often very efficiently, and that it's not a life sentence. It is a biological injury that can be seen with the right brain scan. So that's a paradigm shift that I'd really like to advance for everybody that's suffering from trauma, whether in the military or civilian population. See, that's interesting because I, I've never been clinically diagnosed and I've shared some stories here on the podcast. Um, mm -hmm. But I, I don't know that the things that still afflict me all these years later, I, I just resign to the fact that they're part of me. Like they'll never go away. Flat, ah. Certain flashbacks I have, um, certain things that I do, uh, certain behaviors that have become innate to me uh, in my post-combat experience that I, I, I guess, I don't know, I, 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 you know, it's, it's a weird thing. Like when I go to a restaurant, everybody knows I won't sit my mm -hmm. back to the door. I won't mm -hmm. ever sit my back to the door. I, I, it's, a, it's a natural thing for me to scan mm -hmm. every room I walk in and find every point of egress and entry. Um, and, uh, and I run through my head in an oh shit scenario what do I do before mm -hmm. I even sit down at a table somewhere? It just, it's a natural process for me. And I don't think that's how normal people think, right? I, I just, some of that you can chalk up to training per se, but that's not what normal people do when they go sit down at a restaurant, right? Like that's- Well, that's, it, it is how normal people act when they've been um, exposed to the environments you've been exposed to. It's exactly how a logical person would act, right? So, I mean, getting aside from like diagnosis, what I've really been calling this in my work is just being in a state of chronic threat response. Yes. And that's this, like the way that my patients have described it is um, they can't throttle down. That they're always at this like state where they're like a muscle car and they, they can't calm themselves down um, very easily. So the chronic sleep disruption the difficulties concentrating, the, you know, surges of irritability, the anxiety attacks. Sometimes people get, um, you know, startle response when someone comes up behind them and they're always hypervigilant doing that thing, like scanning and having like the situational awareness that's really adaptive, you know, when you're in a combat zone where people are trying to kill you. But it's really um, difficult in the translation back to most of civilian society. So, I mean, I don't know what, what I've seen, and I've treated uh, 40 patients with, I got to tell you about Dr. Lipoff, Dr. Eugene Lipoff, world-renowned anesthesiologist, figures out in 2006, I can do an injection of an anesthetic into a cluster of nerves in the neck, and it can reboot the adrenaline system. 
and it addresses the hyperarousal part of PTS, all those symptoms I was just describing. So now you can get in there when people are calm in their own bodies and a great psychologist can get in there and work on the, the thinking and behavior that maintains the trauma response. And people can change patterns that they thought were always just going to be a part of their life. So I've seen that, you know, repeatedly over the past couple of years. Yeah. And again, I'm, I'm, you know, for the audience, I'm going through my own experiences and I, and I hate telling my own war story. Like, you know, it, it's not what this is supposed to be about, but I'm just trying to sort of, for the sake of the audience, um, give concrete examples Context. That, that, yeah. Yeah, that, 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 they, yeah. that they can understand. Um, yeah, I, I don't, I, I'll say this. I was doing a podcast with another guest. His name is Pasha Palanker. So shout out to Pasha. And, and he made me realize something that I did not, what scared me the most about PTSD was that it almost seems like you can pass it on. Like we talked a lot about reactions that we have, like snap reactions and how we can quickly, as you said, mm. elevate right to a certain level. Um, yep. And he told me that he realized that he didn't want to pass it on to his kids and it scared the yeah. ever loving hell out of me. And, and yeah. to this day, it scares me because I think I am fearful that my reaction to certain things, even when the kids don't put the toys back or something small that doesn't warrant that reaction, that I'm almost passing that behavior on to them and they mm. don't deserve that. Mm. That is a primary reason that a number of the warfighters I've served have been willing to try something that sounds at first unbelievable to them. You know, to, to say, hey, um, we've got this new innovative treatment where we can do a shot in your neck and it will calm you back down and give you self-command instead of flying off the handle and, and then regretting it and feeling shame and fear about, you know, what you're doing to your family. That is a primary reason why they, they're willing to even try this. Um, and so a lot of the people that we have served have been Marine Corps veterans, uh, people that have served in the Army that have been in that have felt – I don't want this to sound like an infomercial, but it's, it's honestly, it's one of the most promising things I've seen in 20 years. And it's a, it's just so, uh, it's not okay with me that people don't know about the availability of this kind of innovation and other innovations that are available. Uh, Wounded Heroes is a movie I got to put in a plug for. I'm not getting paid for this, but I, I interviewed for this movie, Wounded Heroes. It's a documentary about, maybe six or eight alternative non-medication treatments, um, including stellate ganglion block, what I'm talking about here, uh, that are not psychoactive medication treatments that are very effective in treating post-traumatic stress. And so Michael Geyer, the filmmaker, traveled all over the country, um, heard a lot about the rage in the veteran population around over-drugging, over-medicating, you know, and uh, explored and profiled these different treatments that are effective for post-traumatic stress. And that drops in March, I think March 5th. Um, so just recommend that if anybody's out there listening, there are treatments at work. We're innovating all the time. And don't let people tell you that, you know, you got to be stuck with this. Um, because that movie profiles several treatments that I'm not involved in, um, but are very, very effective. You mentioned uh, drugs, and it sort of brings me to the opioid issue, you know, that we deal with uh, soldiers who are wounded, but also the self-medication aspect uh, of this whole thing. Um, mm -hmm. yeah, listen, uh, it, it's not 
shocking that anybody who has a bad day wants a stiff drink at the end of it, right? Like, and, and right. stiff drink may lead to 10 stiff drinks and so on and so forth uh, and, and a whole bunch of bad decisions. I, yeah. I don't think that that's unrelatable to anybody who's non-military, but uh, the underlying causes of that um, obviously are, are more of the, the bigger issues. So where do you sit on medication? Uh, you know, mm. Do you have a general sort of stance on medication and and how do we sort of curb the self-medicating that veterans do i do i do have a stance i shared some of it for that movie when i interviewed but basically my stance is this um i have had patients for whom a mood stabilizing medication like a bipolar medication or a antidepressant medication was life-changing for them so i don't want to promote the message that all medication is is bad. Um, however, it's the over-medication. And the idea of that is when it loses, you lose com- self-command, you lose control of the process. So what a lot of, I think, patients will, will get into is a cycle where, you know, one medication causes a, you know, sort of an unfortunate side effect, you know, in some way. And so then they are put on a second medication and then it kind of just like adds up and accrues into this um, layered effect of being on so many medications for such a young person. And then you're talking about just alcohol and that being a thing that people do, right? Same principles. When a person doesn't feel like they're in control of that, when it's not something that they're taking out of their own free will and it's a healthy decision, but it's really taking over their life and they don't really have a choice, that's when you want to take a look at it and say, how is this affecting me? Is this affecting me, my relationships, um, what I want to do with the time and energy I've been given in life? That's where you want to look at that, whether that's alcohol or lots of uh, psych meds. I mean, how do we clinically and how do you clinically when it comes to any prescription medication, you know, behavior, antidepressants, the depressants, whatever you were mentioning before, you know, yeah. uh, what's the what's the line? Like, when do you just up the dosage because it's not enough, and when do you decide that the medication isn't working? And you know, I mean, because it almost seems like a lot of this over the last ten years has been trial by error, and and unfortunately, the the, the veterans are the ones paying the price for it because there's not a lot of, there isn't any studies on this, right? Like we just don't have the data points at this point to know enough about the whole thing. Now, you know, in another 10 years after 20 plus years of combat, we probably should. But in the meantime, you know, the, the course of business I talked about earlier, well, the course of business in this case is veterans are dying at a rate that is unacceptable. Yeah. So I'm not a psychiatrist, so I don't prescribe medications, but I've worked with good psychiatrists and I can say from that experience that they um, use a very careful and conservative scientific process and the veteran feels empowered through the process if it's working well. So what that looks like in practice is, you you know, instead of let's try these three medications, you just try one and you see how it goes and you make a decision, you know, whether or not to stay on that. And when they start adding up, then you really start to look at that. And whether or not the person needs to be on a medication or not in the first place or stay on it or just for a short time, that's a a decision that patients should feel empowered to discuss and need to be able to advocate for themselves. If they feel like they're just getting, you know, pills from their docs and they don't have a voice in that, that's a problem. Like that's a problem. This is not an extension of uh, a system where you have to just, you know, take two Motrin and like move on. 
although I respect and, you know, have great respect for our military, like that's a complaint that I hear often is that, you know, it's just sort of like, here's your, you know, Motrin, a vitamin, you know, M and, and, you know, suck it up and move on. When you come out of the military, you are reclaiming your rights as a citizen, a full citizen. And that means being able to advocate for yourself. And that means being able to say, no, that doesn't feel right for me, or I don't want to be on a medication, or let's try it, you know, and maybe just for a short time, and then I'll come off it. So I'm talking about general principles, because prescribing medications, adjusting them, it's really not my field or scope. So Mm -hmm. I want to stay in my scope and give some general principles, you know, to help. Yeah. Uh, What in your experience has been tougher when it comes to veterans? Transitioning out of the military or reintegrating and uh, decompressing after combat and are, what are the similarities and differences? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I would have to say if I had to compare them, it's transitioning out of the military. Both are hard. Uh, Don't get me wrong. You know, the decompression and the elasticity that it takes to go between roles and between worlds and selves is very difficult. Um, So I want to say that, but what I've seen is that, Many people, you know, people of strength and courage and, you know, people that um, you wouldn't expect to struggle, they do, Um, that they often hit a wall in the transition out of the military. And so my book in 2019 with Jason Roncaroni, Beyond the Military, is a 400-page book about the psychological, cultural, and relationship factors that are high-risk factors around military transition. Um, and, and right now, you know, we see military transition in terms of what's going to be, you know, the way to update your resume and get your next job. And we're looking at it as though military service members are coworkers and the central task is to help them find their next paid gig. And I don't think, and Jason, my co-author, we, we sort of reject that whole premise. And we say, no, this is really about how do you support someone who is losing their family who just got cut off from people they love like family um, and a way of life and, a, and an identity, um, roles and responsibilities that have given them purpose and meaning. How do you support someone through that? It is a gut punch. And there are so many psychological and cultural and relationship factors. Like I can't tell you how many of my patients had a super strong relationship break up during transition. And so I wrote 80 pages in that book about relationship-focused risk factors around military transition because it's such a gut punch. And I don't think uh, we're really factoring that in with with our formal programming around transition. Yeah, I mean, I I have remarked uh, several times because I'm in the latter stages of my career, you know, I I keep reminding people, at some point in time, we're all going to be told that we have to take the uniform off. Some people, it's voluntary and they do it after four years. Some people, it is forced after 24, 34 years. But we're yeah. all going to have to take the uniform off. And I, I, I keep reminding people, I, I've spent more of my life in a uniform than yeah. I have out of it. Um, right. And it is part of the very fabric of who I am. Now, I don't, think it. It, I don't think it identifies me in any way. But I'd be lying if I said I wasn't completely scared about the day where I don't get to call myself, you know, member of the U.S. Army anymore because I, I don't know who that person is. I've never met that individual before. Yeah. Well, you're in good company because – you know, going through that process and feeling like you've been stripped of your identity is a trauma for people. 
And, you know, what they discover, the good news is, if they go through the process in a well-informed way, with the right insights and the right support, they come to see that the qualities that made them a warrior are deeper than the uniform or what they did in the time and service. That what a warrior is, I mean, and let me maybe share this with you. This is just my definition of what a warrior is, is somebody who is willing to, who has clarity of thought about the the sacred values that they would be willing to give their life for, the people that they would die for. Um, and they have the willingness to make personal sacrifices, continual personal sacrifices in support of those people or those sacred values. And that is not something that you have to kill off uh, when you transition out. It is something that you actually need to, I believe, reclaim, and it's part of your evolution as a warrior throughout your lifespan. But I don't think veterans are getting that message. I think they're being told that, you know, it's the end of their time and, and there's nothing really left that's going to make them feel that good. I want to ask you this question very broadly for a reason. Mm -hmm. How do we curtail veteran suicide? Um, one of the things that we need to stop doing is using models that work for civilians with warfighters. So there is a unique psychology and a unique area of vulnerability and an Achilles heel, really, in our warfighter community around their culture of um, interdependence and support for others and their guiding values that are not integrated into our suicide prevention approaches. So it's really, you know, in detail in my book, I sort of break down, I'll tell you the process that you read about in my book is from going into these private circles and these reunions, I say to them, what do your demons tell you? the word they use, not, you know, like literal demons, at the end of the tunnel when you want to self-destruct. And then because I was an English major before I was a psychologist, I'm listening for like the themes and what are the themes in those stories and how can I understand this narratively and what is the campaign of the enemy? And then I went and read the Marine Rifle Squad manual and kind of brought that into the mix. So what you'll see in my book, Warrior, is kind of a psyops analysis of how we can get traction with mental warfare based on an understanding of the culture of service and the unique vulnerabilities of our warfighter community. And that's a whole different kind of line of insights. The, the kind of approaches that we've used public messaging campaigns and things like that um, in, in the civilian sector. What are some of the main causes that we're seeing for suicide? Mm. Yeah, that's a good question. So um, I'll give you a couple of examples, and there's many more, you know, that I talk about in Warrior, but I'll give you a couple of specific examples. Um, the, the mere survival of someone when someone they love, like family, like a brother or sister in arms, is killed, um, changes their entire moral framework for the rest of their life. So then Imagine that they come home and they transition and they struggle like a lot of people do. And they go through a crash and burn time like a lot of people do, where maybe they're drinking too much. Maybe it's hard to find the right job. They fall into some depression. They yell at their wife, their kids. What people tend to do is think back um, to that person they lost and they will compare themselves to the ghost of the person they lost. And they will say, Who am I that's worthy? 
to live when someone that never would have struggled like this um, has died and been killed and taken in battle. I'm not worthy to live. And so that can send them down a whole kind of unique psychological trail that is very, very dangerous for them. Um, a second example is, I remember, and I talk about this in the books, like the sessions I had with veterans who had just lost a brother or sister to suicide, which happens, you know, if you think about the numbers that we're losing, um, it happens often. So it's the burden of grief that people in the military tribe feel is way disproportionate than people why? in the civilian world. Why do they die? No, why is the burden of grief bigger? Because they're losing people in their line of, um, in the, the calling that they've pursued, they're losing people in these sudden, unanticipated, traumatic ways, um, whether it's training accidents, because it's a high-risk profession, whether it's people being killed in combat um, during deployments, and the suicide, uh, the suicide. So I remember, you know, talking to um, these Marines that I'm close to, and frequently they will reach out and say, I'm a pallbearer, or I have to go to another funeral this weekend. And there's just no analog for that among the network of people that I enjoy friendship with in the civilian world to be continually going to funerals and having to serve as pallbearers and to be so close to so much loss stacked on loss. That is a unique thing that many of our military service members experience that civilians don't often have uh, maybe more this year, you know, with unfortunately um, people this year are feeling grief and loss that is, you know, somewhat similar to, to what the military population has felt with the losses uh, due to, to COVID and, and other causes this year. So some veterans are saying to me, you know, I feel a little bit less alien because I feel like people maybe can understand a little bit more what it feels like to walk around the world with a thousand pounds of grief on your back. Part of me always has looked at it is more anger and frustration when it comes to um, mm -hmm. veteran suicide because it's like we fought our asses off to survive of, of mm -hmm. what most people can't survive. And right. to have it taken away from you in an arena where we could have done something to stop it is, is a big source of grief and anger and frustration, I think. Yeah, the worst feeling for a warrior is helplessness. It's the worst feeling. And so that's why I think going back to the other example of those sessions where people would come into my office having just lost a brother or sister in arms to suicide with questions that were um, just that would never have an answer were high stakes, high risk times when there was so much anger at themselves for not seeing it. What does this mean for me? What does this mean for our relationship? Was our trust real? Why didn't he tell me? Doesn't he know I would have dropped everything and come to him? Like if he had just told me how bad it was, there was anger at the person who died. There was anger at, you know, systems of care for perceived uh, lack of responsiveness, anger at the spouse, anger at the parents, anger at the military, uh, rage, just obliterating rage. And under rage, we know that there's other emotions. And one of those, you know, emotions is, as you say, it's helplessness, which is pervasive. And that's why I wrote the tactical analysis of mental warfare, because people get pissed in a good way. Once they see the game and they understand 
the threats of the campaign of the enemy are predictable. There's certain messages that you'll hear, and there's a predictable way that you can deploy what you have that's going to be a power stronger than despair. But you really have to understand that and have the right insights and the right support. And that's how I would I would want to change our, our suicide prevention strategy when it comes to uh, the warfighter and veteran community. Why don't soldiers talk more? But like, <laughs> I mean, I just think about me personally. Um, yeah. There are places that I haven't gone and things yep. that I haven't discussed. Mostly... And this is just me personally, mostly because I don't want to peel that Band-Aid off. I know the wound is there. I'm reminded yep. of it repeatedly. Um, I, I, I exist pretty peacefully for the most part. But there are certain times where I think about certain things and the emotion seems to overwhelm <clears> me. <throat> and then I quickly escape from that place because I don't want to feel all those feelings again. Of course. But what are right? some of the reasons why soldiers have you found uh, have trouble talking or don't talk at all? There's a lot of reasons. You know, it's always like everything very complicated. So it depends on, you know, who we're talking about. Um, I'll, I'll give you some examples. So one of the, the themes that I've seen when uh, soldiers don't talk to their wives, for example, is that usually you trace that upstream and there's a self-protective or other protective instinct. So it's a protective instinct that's usually at play. So for example, I don't want my spouse to live with the images that I live with. I want to protect her or him or whatever from um, experiencing those same things in their mind's eye. Or I don't want um, my spouse to see me as a monster or see me as a different person than I, I want to protect You know how that person I love that I need sees me and I'm not going to do anything to risk that. Um, or I don't want to risk getting the wrong response or an unhelpful response, or maybe my spouse will confirm that he or she doesn't really understand where I'm coming from. Right. And then even with like other warriors, it's not true that people are going to talk about their stuff freely because there's also a concern there with, well, you know, does it make me look, like, uh, you know, this Weak. is affecting me, yeah. right, more than them, right? So there's there's this or, um, you know, do we really want to dredge all of it up? Or are people going to be upset at me? You know, uh, there's a number of reasons why people don't talk about it. And one of the things that I think is so important, which I've seen work, is to create these circles where this stuff gets reckoned with directly. Because, you know, this is not um, a confrontation here. Don't don't hear it that way. But just as a challenge, like the harder thing to do here is to face the problem and to take your armor off with people that are trustworthy and address it directly. And when you don't, that is something that can lead to unending distress in your life. And for some people, can lead to a crisis, um, a mental health crisis. So having the ability to um, really walk with people in trust and be open with some people in your life, uh, whether it's a trustworthy doc or a trusted spouse or a brother or sister in arms, that you can create that um, core unit around you that you can take off your armor and, and not feel shame to share whatever's on your mind um, is, is very important. 
I feel like I'm in a session right now. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> <laughs> well, you asked a psychologist on. <laughs> Sorry. I don't know just, any other know, way I to mean, be. I, I have too much guy. My, my head's a pretzel right now. It's a big pretzel. Um, <laughs> oh, crap. No, it's, it's, it's all. I'm trying it's to all, unkink yeah, people. It's, a, it, it's all great information. I, I know I know our audience is, is, is seeing it that way. Um, so how do we know when soldiers get better? Like what is what is healing look hmm. like? And I know well, it's different um, for everybody, obviously. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I'm just kind of curious as far as, you know, some of the examples that you've seen um, where mm-hmm. you can tell you get that, you know, breakthrough is the psychological term, right? We had an emotional breakthrough. Um, mm. when, when, yeah. do we get, when do we see those and how do we know what they look like? That is fun. That is a fun part of my job. Um, and I get to see it all, all the more often now that we have a way of really getting people calm in their own bodies and then taking in a range of new insights, their face changes. I mean, it's, yes, it is different for everybody, um, but their face changes. It, it's like hard to describe it, but it's almost as though there's like a shift from like attention and like a just uh, weight to a sense of purpose and like integrity in the sense of like being aligned with your purpose. Um, so some of the work, you know, that I've done in groups and with individuals have entailed, you know, setting a course for themselves with personal challenges that align them with their warrior code. And this is after the military. This is, you know, that bigger definition of what it is to be a warrior. And they will go out and do these amazing things. This is one of the things I really like working with veterans um, around is because they, they, they know you take a hill, like you take that challenge. And that when they're persuaded, like that's the harder thing to do is reckon with your problems directly and evolve, keep evolving as a warrior. And you'll be stronger in the end. When you do that, to answer your question, people get uh, reinvigorated with a sense of meaning and purpose. And they use their pain and their grief and their trauma as fuel for doing incredible things that are very personally meaningful to them. And that's what varies. You know, people, you know, apply it to different things they care about, but that's when I know somebody's really turned a corner. Difficult question to answer. Uh, If it's true, we are all a product of our experiences. Hmm. Is there anything we should change in your professional opinion about the military and the way we train that would alleviate some of these problems down the road, if that makes sense. Like, yeah. you know, I, I, we, we, you said it before, we're taught to suck it up and drive on, right? It's a yeah. phrase we suck it up and drive on. Um, and we have learned that that's great for combat. That's great for training. Yeah. That's great for mission accomplishment. It's not great when you're struggling, right? Post-military life. Like suck it up and drive on is not a solution because it only ends yeah. up leading you to bad decisions. So is there right. anything about the military theoretically that we could change in the way we train and mm-hmm. how we raise yes. people in the military that might prevent some of these things down the road from happening. Yeah. That's actually not an easy or a hard question at all. Oh, for okay. me. Um, it seemed like I, a hard I one really for me because was... it takes the military a while to change anything in the way they train. Just, you know, well, it's, it's <laughs> hard, you know, good initiative, but you know, hard to <laughs> deploy. Right. Um, what I really think is missing Back to our early part of our conversation. Look, I have tremendous respect for how the military trains warfighters. We have the most amazing military force in the world because of how we train people for battle. And we use really 
intentional psychological practices to prepare people for doing the work of a warrior. Um, what I think is missing that could be added to part of the way we build warriors, Marines, soldiers, and otherwise, is that I think we could be helping people understand the dimension of mental warfare and how that plays out and how that gets a grip on you and how the values that you're instilled with can become unique risk factors if you don't understand them. You know, so what I see is that a lot of people, whether they're in command situations and they're trying to, you know, lead the people under them or military leaders or others feel this pervasive sense of helplessness around suicide and the loss of people, whether active duty or in the veteran status. And I think if we trained in an understanding of the psychological analysis of mental warfare, that would change. Uh, people would recognize it and have a way of addressing it. The other thing is, I think, to your point, um, it's one thing to kind of be in a zone where you need to compartmentalize. I don't judge that or think it's wrong. Actually, you know, I say that's what you need to do to survive that scenario and that situation. But going back to our earlier conversation that we inhabit two worlds, the warrior inhabits two worlds, you have to balance that out with inhabiting and living in the other world of reconnection to people and to values. And we do that by taking off our armor at times in an emotional sense and walking with people in this deep trust that we claim to have with people we would die for. Um, and so that's a different kind of courage than the courage it takes to walk through a, you know, go into a firefight. And a lot of warriors would prefer the firefight to the taking off of their emotional armor with people that they love and trust. But not doing that doesn't provide the balance of inhabiting both worlds, and that'll be a problem down the line. Does that make sense? No, it does. I mean, I, I've i always said, and, and I recognize this after my first deployment, um, you know, surviving is kind of the easy part, right? Like combat in a sense, yeah. deploying in a sense is easier. I don't have to worry about the day-to-day -day grind of mm -hmm. mortgage, bills, kids, soccer practice, whatever it may be, you know, the, the wife wanting you to do this, the husband wanting you to do that. Like, I, I mean, all those things that sort of are the normal stresses of every day, it's almost mm -hmm. a relief in combat that all you got to do is keep your ass alive. Like, it's yeah, a really a simple task. <laughs> like, it, it, it's not as difficult as you'd think. I, I, the, con the consequences are much different, you know, if you don't take out the trash as opposed to if, if, if you don't, <laughs> you know, clear the building the right way. But in reality, yeah. for most of us, like, it, it's to that end, combat's easy. Like, it, well, I mean, easy. Yeah. <laughs> mentally, it's easy to process. It's easy to process. I have a task and I know how to accomplish it, and that's it. And there's nothing to distract you from it. There are distractions <laughs> that, that sort of weigh you down in regular life. And, and I think yes. that's part of the other part of transition is getting back to those distractions uh, on top of, you know, what you have just went through um, that yeah. sort of compound things or exponentially make it difficult. Yeah, right. Like as a civilian who's never been in combat, I can't agree that like it's easy to be in combat. You can say that, you know, you have the moral authority to say that. I don't. But I do think, you know, I hear often that there's a real ability to focus and an immediacy of purpose that is a psychological relief mm -hmm. over all the things that are like pulling at you and distracting you. But you have to be able to navigate both worlds. That's why when you're in combat, the most dangerous thing that happens 
to a soldier in a, in a, in a deployment area or in, in, in a war zone is if something back home is tugging at them because it takes their focus away, right? Whether it's, you know, maybe, maybe there's a, you know, relationship issues or a child is sick or whatever, that laser focus that you have to stay alive now all of a sudden is being distracted by things that you have no control over. And we talked about the hopelessness, right? And, and the, the lack of control that drives us nuts. Like that is what makes combat difficult. Um, you mess with a soldier's pay, you mess with a, with a Marine's family, all of a sudden the focus that they take in a combat is now deterred. Right. And so, you know, to do that and to have that laser focus, there are people at home, spouses and family members who are just navigating things on their own and trying to keep their soldier, their Marine from being distracted. And that will change a relationship over time. So that needs to be re-knit together after transition and between combat deployments so that that family can come together and re-navigate their roles as a couple so that the relationship doesn't become one of resentment and, you know, somebody controlling one entire area of the relationship and the other person feeling like they're on the outside. I want to give you a chance to sort of uh, shamelessly plug uh, outlets, medias, you know, places people can go, uh, whatever you're working with. Uh, if you want to give out a whole bunch of information now where uh, soldiers, Marines, airmen, whoever it is that, you know, may want to get help or are curious about ways that they can improve the quality of their life. I want to give you sort of a platform to tell everybody. Thank you. Um, I would say that if you go to www.docshaunaspringer, it's D-O-C-S-H-A-U-N-A-S-P-R-I-N-G-E-R.com, you can find my books and there are links to um, different resources, podcasts, articles. I've written various places uh, Stella Center is linked to my website, and that website as well is www.stellacenter.com, uh, where we're doing some really innovative work around a biological approach to treating post-traumatic stress. So that would be a second place. And then I've just launched an Instagram page, and I'm not very good with it, so I need a lot of patience. But <laughs> there, if you're good at that or you want to connect or, or you know, sort of like you know, help me have one more person I connect with on there, please find me there as well. All right. Well, I mean, again, it has been a, an, an amazing learning lesson. Um, I feel like I just got a free session. So uh, <laughs> I feel much, much more co-joined to society once again. Um, but <laughs> no, I mean, in reality, there's, there's so much here, right? I mean, it, it's impossible to nearly encompass it um, in, in a couple of hours or however long we've been yeah. talking. So, uh, you know, but I, but I do think the point that, you know, we, we bring to light is that there are more avenues now than there ever were before for veterans and soldiers and Marines and airmen to go get help, right. To, to go talk about it. And thankfully the military at its glacier pace um, is slowly starting to allow mental health to be part of the complete body of work that is, you know, a U.S. military member. Um, and so to, and that I, end, to that end, I think that it's really, imp- you know, we're taking the right steps. Yeah. I feel so strongly that there are, are insights we need to integrate that I I wrote about them in Warrior, uh, How to Support Those Who Protect Us. And for people who don't want to read a book, I read it to you. So there's an audiobook version that's available now as well um, if people want to listen to it. Um, And I just think there's so much hope because there are so many innovations I've become aware of where PTS, post-traumatic stress, does not have to be a life sentence. You really can accomplish an amount, like a, an amazing amount of recovery with some of the things that, that we're doing now. 
Again, the book is Warrior, How to Support Those Who Protect Us. Uh, she's also co-authored Beyond the Military, A Leader's Handbook for Warrior Reintegration. The website, docshaunaspringer.com, D-O-C-S-H-A-U-N-A Springer, like it sounds, dot com. Uh, I can't thank you enough uh, for sharing your expertise, your time, uh, and certainly just a, a wonderful conversation. Uh, and, I, and I hope that, you know, for those listening out there, that you guys are getting something from this, guys and gals are getting something from it that uh, that, that will start to change your life in a positive direction. Because reminder again, that they're, they're, as you said, none of what we have done is a life sentence, right? Like, I think that's the most important right. thing. We're not stuck in the position that we are. Um, and, and we can change our future and, and the experiences that, that built us don't have to be the, the experiences that define us for the future. Yeah. Warriors are really good at changing everything once they have their minds set on what needs to, you know, be the challenge. So absolutely happy to come on. It was fun. Uh, thank you for having me. No, Dr. Shona Springer, thank you so much for being part of the Hazard Ground. You've been listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at producer at hazardground.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.